Thanks, Nikki. Well, today's our last, series, or last uh, day of this series, this faithful series. We started it 10 weeks or so ago, originally looking at the end of Genesis. We looked at Genesis 37 through 50 and looked at, at the person of Joseph and how in the midst of a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulty, God was faithful to him and he was faithful to God. Then we fast-forwarded about 11 or 1,200 years uh, to the book of Daniel, and we looked at, at this person of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and we looked at how it, while they were in exile, having been kicked out of Jerusalem, the city of peace, and into Babylon, the city of idolatry and, uh, and, and paganism, that even there they found God was faithful, and they were faithful to him. And so this has been a good series for us, um, and I think that our faith is encouraged when we can see some examples of people who live out uh, what we all say we believe. Uh, Brett Berger made this point a few weeks ago, um, that, that part of the reason that this book is written is to provide a model. It's to provide an example. It's not only to do that, by the way. It's not only to say, hey, be more like Daniel, um, because that's just moralism. But, but it is to say, look at these people who have gone before you. Look at these, these saints, this cloud of witnesses who have been faithful and emulate them. Look at these great men and women of the faith. And imitate their faith. And, and I find that we read these stories, and at least if you're like me, you read them and you think, yes, I want to be like that. I want to be bold. I want to be courageous. I want to be the one that goes into the king and says, King, I don't care. I may die, but I know that God is able to deliver me. It doesn't matter. You can't touch me. He's stronger. I'd love to have that kind of faith. And yet the reality is in the day-to-day life, most of us, many of us, settle for mediocrity. We read the stories, we have these great moments, but then we just sort of settle. I'm, I'm amazed, I'm, I'm saddened really by the way that I, by the way that we settle for mediocrity. I, I don't know if it's that we're afraid to stand out. You know, it, it's what, I went to New Zealand a number of years ago and they have this, this cultural idea there and it's as common in, in the UK and in Australia and some of these other places. It's called tall poppy syndrome. Anybody ever heard of that? Tall poppy syndrome. It's the idea that that the tallest poppy, that's a plant, that the tallest one that stands out above the others is the one that gets chopped down. And so culturally, what they have is this idea that there are people who deserve genuine uh, credit, recognition, affection because they stand above other people and they get cut down. They're the one that gets criticized, right? If if you if you step up, if you stand out, you're going to take some shots. Right? If, you, if you just drift back to the pack, right, you, you don't take any shots. So I was watching uh, the Olympic uh, race yesterday, right, the bike race, and I was doing this only because I'm friends with Matthew, and he loves cycling, and I knew we'd ha- have something to talk about. <laughs> right? and, and it got to the very end, and uh, if you didn't see it, I don't know, you, you had a long time to see it yesterday, <laughs> so I'm ruining it for you. But, but there's, there was a... a there was a, the Peloton, which is the main pack, and then there was like another pack, and then there were these two guys at the front, and they're going, and they got like 200 meters left, and it's just them neck and neck, and they're kind of jockeying and doing their thing, and one guy looks, he's, he's kind of on the left, and he looks over his left shoulder and just veers like a teenage driver, <laughs> right? Just, and you're like, where is he going? And the other guy's like, whoop, just wins, right? Well, well I'm, I'm sitting here going, that guy... What a stupid move. Like, I'm not even a cyclist. That was dumb, right? But, but the reason I can critique him is because he stood out from the pack, 
right? There were 40 other guys that I don't know anything about. And they won't take any heat. No one will tweet about them. No one will critique them because they're just there in the pack. See, if you stand out, you might get chopped down. And I don't know if it's our fear of that. Like, it's our fear that if, if I stand up, if I really am somebody who's bold and faithful to God, regardless of the consequences, I'm going to take heat for it. I don't know if it's that. I don't know what it is. But we so often settle for mediocrity, and God calls us to more. And here's the good news about faithfulness. This is what we've been talking about in this series. The good news is that regardless of your ability, you can be faithful. Faithfulness does not take any particular skill. It doesn't take any particular talent. It just takes being faithful, right? So one of the biggest lies in the world that I'm just here to expose is that you can be anything you dream to be. No, you can't, right? I'd very much like to play in the NBA, Right, and I could dream about it, and I could focus, and I could even work really hard. Look at me. I'm never playing in the NBA, right? And, and this is just not going to happen, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a certain level of talent, at which point you've got to work hard to develop that talent. But if you don't even have that, you've you got no chance, right? And life is filled with that, right? And, and, but listen, you don't need to be particularly smart. You don't need to be particularly talented or funny or skilled to be faithful. All you have to do is love God, hear his word, obey what he says, and you're faithful. Well, Daniel, this person we've been looking at, he does stand out. And he experiences as a result of that both the good of being faithful. There's an incredible access to and joy with God that he gets to experience that is uncommon to most people because of his faithfulness. He also takes all the shots. He also experiences the pain of it. And what I love is that in this story that we're going to look at here in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is now in his 80s. We started the book where Daniel was a teenager and we were wowed by, here's this young man making a vibrant stand for God. He's not going to eat the king's food. He's going to be faithful to his God. He's not going to let his heart be corrupted. And he's 13 and you go, yeah. And and some of you go, well, that's just part of being young and you've got to take a stand for something. But here he is 83 now, and he's still faithful, still got a vibrant passion. I know a lot of people who who would say, you know what, man, my life, the time that it was really on fire was was back in fill in the blank, back in college, back when I took that short-term trip, back when I had that mentor, back when, right? And for most of us, our best life with God is in the rearview mirror. And God's calling us to something bigger than that. And he gives us this as an example. So let's look at this. Uh, We're going to look at this famous story, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. We have a new king here in the mix, right? The book had started with uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar being the king, and then his grandson Belshazzar. Belshazzar. And now we have Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede was probably appointed, he was an appointed ruler under Cyrus. Chapter 9, verse 1 tells us that. He's the new leader of the, from the Medo-Persian kingdom. So there's been a whole overtaking of the government, a whole restructuring of the political order. And here's what it says happened. Darius said, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents. Now, don't get our political system confused with this one, right? There's 120 satraps. Those would be sort of like governors, 
Uh, the presidents would be like cabinet members, perhaps, if you will. Verse 2, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So what's the function of these satraps and these presidents? It appears to be something related to revenue collection, right? And so the king has at least some sort of concern that perhaps these satraps may be collecting taxes, skimming off the top, and so he creates a system in which these presidents will, will uh, be over them. They'll have to give an account to these three men. Daniel is one of these three. Verse 3, then Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. That word excellent spirit has with it the idea of honesty, of integrity. And so what you see here is that the king has put in charge this system, and he's hoping that the people he's put in charge will deal honestly and have integrity and not skim money, not steal from him, but in fact they do. And even the presidents who are designed to be accountable, to hold them accountable, they don't seem to have this same kind of commitment to excellence that Daniel does. But Daniel's faithful. Daniel knows, listen, I'm not just giving an account to Darius, I'm giving an account to God. All of my life is all for him. And so if I pilfer here, if I steal a little bit here, if I turn a blind eye here, I give an account to God for it. Well, that makes him a valuable commodity in this kingdom, right? So it says at the end of verse 3, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now that sounds familiar for those of us that were here with Joseph, right? When we looked at Joseph, what we saw was that he was so wise, he was so filled with God's spirit that Pharaoh basically put him over the whole kingdom. And so Daniel is going to have this same sort of experience. That doesn't make people happy. So verse 4, the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Listen, this is partly jealousy, right? Man, I wish I had that spot. But it's also they know that Daniel's going to shut down their corrupt money-making scheme, right? We've got to do something to stop this. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. They're looking, and they're looking, and and they're looking for some way, some angle, something, and no charge that they could make up in their head is going to stick. They just know it's not going to happen because he's faithful. So they say, verse, uh, verse 5, and this is just an incredible verse, these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Think about that. Saying that there's, there's nothing, no charge we could make up is going to stick. Our only hope is to make something up related to his religion because he's obviously clearly into that. Can you imagine that being what people who wanted to conspire against you would say? You know, they always tell the truth. I can't, I can't trap them in a lie. You know, they, they don't gossip and slander. Every words, all the words they say are encouraging and helpful. I can't, I can't pit them against someone else. No one will buy that. You know what I have to do? I have to say they're intolerant because they're too committed to their God, right? That's what, that's what happens to truly faithful people. It's an incredible thing. So they come to agreement to the king, and they say, O King Darius, live forever. 
Uh, Verse 7, all the presidents of the kingdom, this is what they say to Darius, all the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. Revoked. So they have this idea. They say, you know what we need to do? Let's go to the king and let's get him to, to say, you can't pray, you can't, you can't intercede to anyone else but me for 30 days. And this can't be revoked. And I love the, the, what, what they use in verse 7. It's something called false consensus effect. All right? Do you notice what they say? Uh, all the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors are agreed. We're all agree. Every, everybody knows. Everybody feels this way. Right? If, if you're at all in any kind of leadership, you've experienced false consensus effect. We experience it with the church. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people, and they think that the music's too loud. And what you find out is a lot of people are me and my wife. Right? Everybody's feeling like... And you start to go, who? Name names. Well, there's a lot of people. Who? Well, I don't want to get anyone in. Tr- there is no one, right? It's false consensus effect. It's we, we think that if we have an opinion, everyone else must share our opinion. And so we present it as, well, everybody does. And that's exactly what they do. Do you think that they really got all the governors and all the people and everyone in the government to say, we all think that this is? No. no. It's false consensus effect. That's what they do. They say, hey, you should do this. Now, this would be appealing to Darius because Darius is new to power. He's trying to consolidate power. And uh, clearly, Darius in his mind is not thinking that this might impact Daniel. But he says, okay, if no one can pray to anyone but me for 30 days, for a month, then that would probably be good to get people to, to all focus on one thing and we'd come together and we'd be united as a country. Let's do it. So he agrees. Verse 9, he signed the document and the injunction. Well, who's that going to impact? That's going to impact anyone that's faithful to the one true God who says, I'm not going to bow down before a man. I'm not going to worship or pray to a human being. I'm going to pray to the one true God. That's Daniel. And so verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows and his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. A couple things in this verse, verse 10, that I love. The first one is, it seems as though Daniel is waiting until he knows it's been signed. Right? When he saw that it had been signed, he went to his house and he prayed. Right? So this, this thing wasn't going, oh no, what am I going to do? I better call ADF. I better, you know, get, get uh, you know, First Amendment rights. I got right? to fight. He goes, no, bring it. Okay, as soon as he knew, he went to his house, he opened up the things, wasn't ashamed, and he prayed. Notice that this was his regular pattern. It says at the end, as he had done previously. So this wasn't him adding something new in sort of some protest, but his pattern, his habit, his rhythm, his part of how he built into his life the fabric of faithfulness was regular, ongoing prayer. Notice this kind of prayer. He got down on his knees 
The Bible doesn't prescribe that that's how we have to pray. You can pray standing up. You can pray sitting down. You can pray as you drive. You can pray as you exercise. And you can pray on your knees. And when you pray on your knees, at least it symbolically says to the Lord, I'm surrendered to you. I'm bowed down to you. Your will be done. And that's what his prayer was. And his prayer was a prayer of thanks. Verse 10. He gave thanks before his God. He had lots that he could complain about. He had lots that he could be worried about. And instead he was thankful. And I found for me personally that much of my discontent, much of my sort of looking over the fence to see if the grass is greener comes from a lack of thankfulness. So this was the pattern, right? The, the, the faithfulness to stand up in the, moment, in, in the key moment didn't, didn't just happen. It happened through building a regular rhythm of faith and trust in God. Surrender to Him, thankful to Him, praying, talking to Him. Well, they find, uh, in fact, they, they go right by agreement, it says in verse 11. They conspire. They say, oh, wow, look, Daniel's doing exactly what he thought we, he would do. And so let's arrest him. Let's get him. They go to the king. They say, hey, king, didn't, do, do you remember? Didn't you sign this? And the king's like, yeah, I did. And he's like, well, Daniel's kind of breaking your law. Okay, well, I guess I got to do something, right? Because this, this law of the Medes and the Persians, it couldn't be revoked. You couldn't just say, well, never mind. It's kind of like the idea, really, of, a, of a, probably a Supreme Court decision, right? It can't just be struck down after that's. I mean, that's the final word. Well, this distresses the king. It says, verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, right? The king is going, oh, no, this had unintended consequences. I didn't see it going this way. I love Daniel. Daniel, Daniel honors me. Daniel's faithful to me. My kingdom thrives because of him. I, I want to elevate him to power, and now I'm going to have to put him in a lion's den? So he set his mind to deliver Daniel, it says, verse 14. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He, he, right, he exhausted every possibility. He went to every different person and said, can we make a deal? Can we make something happen, right? And what the king, what the most powerful man can't do, we'll see God can. So, verse 16, then the king commanded... And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. You get the sense from this passage that the den is probably a bit like a well, uh, right? It's a bit like a hole, some sort of cavern, and there are lions at the bottom, and this is a, a form of punishment. They throw him in there. The king says, I hope God can do something for you. I sure couldn't. I hope God can. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the tomb, I mean den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night, notice the king's reaction, right? He's distraught over this. He had no idea that, that this thing would, would cost him and the person he cared about so much. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, so no food. No diversions were brought to him. I think that's funny, like no yo-yos or, you know, like whatever kings do to occupy their time. And sleep fled from him, right? So he's he, he, not eating, nothing for fun, nothing on TV, can't sleep. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste 
to the den of lions. So all he's thinking about all night is, I wonder what happened to Daniel. I wonder what happened to Daniel. I hope he's okay. Verse 20, and as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Notice that in verse 16 and in verse 20, how does the king, how does this person that worked closely with Daniel identify him? He identifies Daniel as one who served the living God continually. This was not rare. This was not exceptional. This was continual. It was consistent. It was a pattern of faithfulness. Has he been able to deliver you from the lions? And what did he expect to hear? I don't know. But he may have thought, what a, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm talking into the wind. And then he hears, verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no, no harm. He's saying, I... God knows that I wasn't guilty. God knows I was innocent. God delivered me here. He shut the lion's mouths. Then the king, verse 23, was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. What is trust? What is trust? Trust is faith, right? When we talk about faith, when we talk about belief, what we're talking about is trust. So often in our culture, the idea of faith, the idea of belief is simply, do you agree that something is true or that something happened? But, but, but biblically, the idea of, of trust and faith, it's, it's leaning into something. You trusted God, right? What he's saying is, because he had been faithful. Right? Daniel's character shone because he was faithful. He's delivered here because he was faithful. And the king commanded, this is brutal. He, he then says, okay, all you guys that made these false accusations, we're sending you and your families into the den. And it says that their bones were broken and crushed by the lions before they even hit the ground. It's brutal. It's a brutal story from a brutal pagan king. But then the king writes, it says, verse 25, then the king Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's where we're going to end our study in Daniel. We'll uh, maybe at some point come back and pick up in chapter 7 through the end and talk about the prophecies and the end times and the things that come there. But for now, what we've been looking at, what we want to examine today in particular is what is it to be faithful? What is it to be faithful? What's the main point of chapter 6? See, chapter 5, we saw that the main point of that was that God's in charge, and that God is faithful. 
And if God's faithful, if God's in charge, we don't have to be afraid. I think the point of chapter 6 is that God then calls us to be faithful. God's saying, I'm like this, you can trust me, so trust me. That's what this is about. It's about trusting God. How can we, 2,000 plus years later, be people who are faithful? People who trust in God, even when it's going to cost us. How do we do that? There's four things I want us to see about faithfulness. Uh, From this passage and from the whole of Scripture, the first thing is this. Faithfulness is expected of God's people. God expects His people to be faithful. Uh, Those of you who are married, you expect your spouse to be faithful, right? And no one's like, boy, that's an exceedingly harsh expectation, No, it's part of the covenant relationship. Well, as part of the covenant that we're in with God, He expects us to be faithful. That's not, that's not, wow, how burdensome, how how cruel of God, how demanding. No, He expects us to obey Him, to trust Him, to care for Him, to love Him. That's, That's totally justifiable. He says in John 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If if you love me, if, if, if I delight you, if your heart is happy by knowing me, you'll do what I say. You'll want to, right? Not because you have to, but you'll just want to. Uh, John writes this in 1 John 5. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So how do you know if you really love God? Do you, do you keep his commandments? Is there, again, not you can't do it perfectly, right? The, even in 1 John there, he says, if anyone claims he has no sin, he deceives himself. Right? But, but is there a pattern, a growing pattern, a growing habit, a growing consistency in obeying God? Then you love Him. Otherwise, you may say, well, I believe that He is going to help me get out of hell when I die. But you don't love Him, which means you should really question whether He's going to help you get out of hell when you die. Because if you don't love Him, you probably don't trust Him. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. His commands aren't burdensome. God knows that when He says don't, what He means is don't hurt yourself. When He says, here's something I want you to do, what He means is this is a path of blessing and joy for you. Right? So it is a, it is a delight. It is good for us to trust in God, to obey God. And everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. What's the victory that overcomes? What does he say at the end? Our faith. Right? So God expects his people to be faithful. And yet, we have a hard time with that, don't we? We've got opposition, right? We've got the the world tempting us in all kinds of directions. We've got the enemy tempting us in all kinds of directions. And we have the enemy within our own, what the Bible calls flesh, that corrupt, sinful nature that, that causes us to war against what God wants. But God calls us to be faithful. Here's the second thing. Faithfulness is the accumulation of 10,000 small decisions, most of them unseen. That's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness isn't one moment. Faithfulness is built by day after day, going up to your room, getting on your knees, giving thanks to God in prayer. 
as he had done previously, right? Here's the thing. It's easy to die for Jesus. It's hard to live for. Right? Anyone in a moment can go, oh, I'm going to do it. But, but listen, if you haven't lived for him, you probably won't die for him. It's the accumulation of all these small decisions. I think about this as I watch these Olympians, right? And they do all these profiles. And I don't know if you saw the commercial. I, I try to fast forward through the commercials if I can. But the commercial where the, there, people are like, I haven't had a donut in two years, you know. I haven't had a drink. I haven't watched TV. I haven't. And I didn't make the Olympic team, and I blew it, right? But, but it's, it's the acute, right? You don't become Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte, Usain Bolt. You, you don't just become that overnight. It's, it's the accumulation of thousands of hard practices, thousands of them, thousands of right choices. And listen, it can be undone in a moment, right? Did you hear about this Greek triple jumper? This gal, I mean, she's trained her whole life, she's worked her whole life, and she tweets out something that uh, has some racist undertones, and she gets kicked off the team, right? So, so faithfulness takes thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions to build and one to undo, but it's this steady accumulation. It's like a muscle. Faithfulness is like a muscle. See, I imagine that at some point I'm going to wake up and just be incredibly great at whatever I want to be. Do any of you think that will happen? Right, like I'd like to really improve and grow as a writer. Anybody think I'm just going to wake up and that will happen as a writer? No, no. It's going to happen through the steady writing. Right, if you want to be in shape, you're not just going to wake up in shape, right? It's, it's, it's the steady accumulation of these things. It's a muscle. It gets stronger with use and it atrophies with disuse. And so this is a long journey, it's a long road, and it's built with the help of community. It's built with the help of people, right? You, you only get to that place, if you think, again, Olympics, if you, if, they don't get there on their own. They get there with a coach, they get there with a team, they get there with a training partner. Do you have those people in your life? Do you have a community around you who's, who's helping you? He's saying, especially in the moments when you're weak and you go, you know what, I, I, I've... I, I've done 9,000 good decisions. Time to just make a bad one. Do you have someone in your life that goes, hey, 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 don't go there. Or hey, you went there, and I still love you. Now let me help you. Do you have that? In a couple of weeks, we'll be starting our on-ramp as a church. That's the time of year where we invite everyone to join with the redemption community, to try to get in a community, at least to, to create the possibility that that kind of friendship and relationship might happen. We can't promise that it will, but to get in a place where you go, this at least gives me a shot to, to grow, to grow in faithfulness. Faithfulness is expected. It's the accumulation of many small decisions. Number three, faithfulness is costly but worth it. It's costly, but it's worth it. I mean, think about what it costs the men we've studied in this series, right? It costs Joseph, right? And when Joseph is faithful, when Potiphar's wife is coming to him and saying, hey, hey, aren't I tempting? When, when he's faithful in the midst of that, what does it cost him? It sends him to jail where he's forgotten for years. What does Daniel's faithfulness cost him? It costs him getting thrown into this place, into this, into this den of lions where he doesn't know for sure that God's going to deliver him. 
He's got all the fear of that. It costs him the, the affection and the admiration of these corrupt peers of his, right? I mean, faithfulness is costly. Don't you think for a second that if you take a firm, hard stand for God, everyone's going to love it? Some will. Many won't. Many will say, you, you, you've just become one of these religious fanatics. You're an extremist. You're, oh, you're a Jesus freak now? And, and, and that tall poppy thing will come into you and you'll go, oh, I don't, I don't want to stand out too much. It's costly. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a relationship. It's going to cost you, in some ways, a reputation. It may cost you advancing in your career. Those of you especially who are considering following Jesus, right? You're, you're here and you're exploring this. One of the things I want you to know, it's going to cost you. Jesus said that if you want to follow him, you have to pick up your cross every day, deny yourself, and follow him. Picking up your cross means, up, means die, die to yourself. So there's a cost to this. You, you may decide to cross the line of faith and trust in God, and you may find that people go, I can't be friends with you anymore. You're not the guy you used to be. We used to be able to, to hang out and party and have fun and laugh, and I, I just I, I don't even know who you are anymore. Be ready for that. Some of you are there now. Be encouraged. Now listen, what, what I'm not saying is that we should go out and be, I, I think a, some of the persecution, we'll talk about this this fall when we study First Peter, some persecution comes from being faithful, some comes from being dumb. Right? Like being, being provocative and polemical and I got to try to stir the pot, right? That, that's some of it. I'm not talking that. I'm talking true, genuine, I'm standing for the Lord. It's going to cost you. But here's the thing. It's worth it. It's worth it. Think about what Joseph and Daniel experienced in their relationship with God. Think about the fellowship they had with Jesus and his suffering. That's what it talks about in Philippians 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. See, when you are mistreated for your faithfulness, Blessed are you. There is, a, there is a kind of experience you have where you taste what Jesus tasted and there is encouragement there from God that can only come from Him. There are joys you can see when you trust God and you're not sure He's going to come through and He does. And you go, it was worth it. So even if it pays off, and you're delivered from trouble, you go, yes, if you suffer, then you have more fellowship with Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's worth it to be faithful to God. But, but how? In faithfulness, is, it's expected. It's this accumulation effect. It's worth it. It's costly. How, how do you do it? Or do you just go... I'm going to be faithful. Decided a hundred times before to be faithful, and I've blown all a hundred, but this time's different. Right? Is this just more resolve? What, what is this? Where, where do you get the power to be faithful? Well, faithfulness, number four, faithfulness is empowered by the faithful one. Faithfulness is empowered by the faithful one. One, I want to go back to what we looked at in John 14, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
See, what's at stake in the midst of any kind of temptation, in any kind of moment when we want to shrink or we want to, we, we want to um, give in, we, we want to fold our cards, we want to compromise, what's at stake is love. What do we love? Do we love Jesus more than the comfort of the moment? Do we love Jesus more than the opportunity to be empowered? Do we love Jesus more than our reputation? See, what will dictate whether we keep his commands over and over is whether and who we love. Do you love him? What will help you love him? See, duty and obligation here, it won't work. Only love of Jesus. And so the only thing that will empower you to be faithful is to love him, to have a vision of the, of the faithful one. And that vision of the faithful one, that trust in the faithful one will allow you to be faithful. And when I say faithful one, do you know who I'm talking about? I'm not talking about Joseph. I'm not talking about Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. And I'm, and I'm not talking about Daniel. I'm talking about the one to whom all of them point. The true faithful one. Jesus Christ. Did you, did you see him in this passage? Did you see him there? You know he's there. Right, the Bible's not just about you or me or Daniel. It's about him, right? So did you see? Did you see him in verse 4? When all these officials could find no ground to accuse Daniel, nothing that could stick, did you see him there? Because what happened with Jesus is when he was arrested, he stood before, uh, b- before the Sanhedrin and, and before Pilate, and they said, we can't accuse you of anything. No charge that we have will stick. we got to make something up. Daniel points to Jesus. Did you see him in verse 17? When after dying on a cross, Jesus was put not in a lion's den, but in a tomb, and a stone was put there. Did you see him there? It pointed to him. Did you see him in verse 23? When Daniel's taken out of the den, just like Jesus came out of the grave and rose victoriously, did you see him there? He's the truly faithful one. Did you see him in verse 25? When this foreshadowing of the Great Commission would happen, when King Darius is saying, let's, let's tell everybody in the world, all peoples, nations, languages, that there's one king. Do you know that that's exactly what Jesus told to tell his disciples, to tell, told to tell us? Hey guys, tell everyone, all peoples, nations, languages, there's one king, his kingdom shall never be destroyed. He delivers, he rescues. Right? This whole passage points to Jesus. There's one key difference. Daniel is rescued because of his faithfulness, because he's blameless. Jesus also is blameless, but he's not rescued. So just real fast, let that just sink in, lest you adopt some sort of bad things only happen to people who deserve them mentality. Right? No one's going to be more faithful than Jesus, and yet he still suffers. Why did he suffer? He suffered because he took the punishment we deserve so that we could have the life he deserved. He's the truly faithful one. 
He has overcome death. He has overcome sin. He has overcome the world. He has overcome the devil. He's faithful. And when your heart is gripped and stirred by him, and when you see that he is for you all that you could never be for yourself, and you trust him, and you love him, and you cultivate that day by day and moment by moment, when the heat comes, when the big moment hits, you'll be faithful. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Maybe you're here and you're like the man who encountered Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's probably where a lot of us are. We've tasted, we've seen, we know that he's good. But we need more. Let's pray that he'd give it to us. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And you're faithful to us. 